0: you do you let true green do your lawn care visit truegreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed
1: i'm margaret brennan and today on face the nation ukraine's president makes an urgent plea for help and warns this morning of impending war crimes as russia shells the south and the east targeting populated areas President Biden's top diplomat, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, joins us from the region to update on what the U.S. is doing to help. Meanwhile, with Russian forces just 20 miles outside the capital city of Kiev, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky pleads for more firepower. We'll ask Ukraine's ambassador to the U.S. Oksana Makarova what they need and ask House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff what lawmakers can deliver. Plus, we'll hear from the former U.S. Ambassador to NATO, Kurt Volker, about how the Western Alliance is mobilizing to face its greatest threat in decades. And as the fighting drives the biggest refugee exodus in Europe since World War II, we will get the latest from the United Nations Refugee Commissioner, Filippo Grandi. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning, and welcome to Face the Nation. We have watched with growing horror as Vladimir Putin's rampage through Ukraine continues. The death toll from both sides is incalculable at this point. The news and pictures from the region are adding a surreal quality, devastating a world still struggling to recover from a two-year global pandemic. Russia's economy, and in turn the Russian people, have suffered a series of blows, from crippling sanctions imposed by the U.S. and its allies to the growing list of major corporations pulling out of that country. But Vladimir Putin has refused to back down. Yesterday, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky asked Congress for more aid, including fighter jets. And again today, he repeated that plea for a no-fly zone, a request the U.S. and its allies have rebuffed for fear of direct confrontation with Russia's military. We begin in Kiev with Charlie Dagata. Charlie?
2: Good morning, Margaret. The latest word from the International Red Cross is that effort to evacuate as many as 200,000 residents from the southern city of Mariupol has failed again for the second day in a row. Both sides blaming each other for breaking a temporary ceasefire with renewed fighting. RESIDENTS IN THE BESIEGED CITY OF Mariupol HAVE WITHSTOOD SOME OF THE HEAVIEST SHELLING FROM THE RUSSIAN MILITARY SINCE THIS INVASION BEGAN. DOCTORS WITHOUT BORDERS DESCRIBES THE HUMANITARIAN CRISIS AS CATASTROPHIC AND THAT CIVILIANS ARE IN DESPERATE NEED. THE CITY'S HOSPITAL IS OVERWHELMED. A MAN RUSHES IN, CLUTCHING HIS 18-MONTH-OLD SON, WOUNDED IN SHELLING. Doctors try frantically to revive the little boy, but they're unable to save him. His mother breaks down in tears. Elsewhere, the brutal onslaught has only intensified, destroying everything in its path. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky today warned that Russia is now planning to bombard the port city of Odessa while renewing the plea for a no-fly zone countered by President Putin's warning to the West that any country declaring a no-fly zone would be seen as an enemy combatant. With Moscow now banning all media coverage of the war in Ukraine, Visa and MasterCard have now joined the growing number of international companies suspending operations in that country. Even as Russian troops close in on major cities, Ukrainian forces continue to put up a fierce resistance. CLAIMING TO HAVE DOWNED A RUSSIAN FIGHTER JET. AND THE DEFENSE MINISTRY DISTRIBUTING VIDEO OF A RUSSIAN ATTACK HELICOPTER SHOT OUT OF THE SKY. EVEN IN OCCUPIED CITIES LIKE Kherson, ANTI-RUSSIAN PROTESTS AND DEMONSTRATIONS ARE ALREADY UNDERWAY, RESIDENTS CONFRONTING ARMED RUSSIAN SOLDIERS. AND YET THE MORE DETERMINED THE RESISTANCE, the more devastating the Russian military's response. This morning, Pope Francis rejected Russia's assertion that this is a military operation, saying it is a war, which is leading to rivers of blood and tears. Here, a Ukrainian delegate says a third round of peace talks with Russian counterparts are due to take place tomorrow. Margaret.
1: Charlie Daggett in Kyiv, stay safe. CBS News national security correspondent David Martin has been closely tracking the Russian military's march toward Kiev, and he joins us now. David, uh, the U.S. had been projecting Kiev would fall within days. Is that still what they expect?
3: No. The, the uh, Russian attempt to quickly take down the Ukrainian government has clearly failed. The Russians stalled, but we got to remember... They're stalled, but this is not a spent force. We've seen the satellite photos of that convoy stuck on the road northwest of of Kyiv. There's another convoy east of Kyiv, which is a, a tank column, almost a division's worth of tanks. They ended up there when they ran out of gas, literally ran out of gas, but they've been refueled now. And you can just see that it it seems to be a matter of time before this push from the northwest and this push from the east come together in an encirclement.
1: And what happens when Kiev becomes encircled? Because the United States has set some pretty clear lines of what they won't do. If Ukraine gets these fighter jets they want, will that make a difference?
3: Sure, it'll make a difference, but will it be decisive? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, the uh, the Poles, who are the country that is willing to transfer these uh, MiG-29s, on paper, they have 27 MiG-29s. We don't know if all 27 are, are combat-ready. But more importantly, we don't know how many pilots Ukraine has left. Because in air combat, it's the shortage of skilled pilots that usually gets to you before Loss of aircraft.
1: The U.S. has been pouring, my sources say, just pouring Stinger missiles, anti uh, aircraft and anti tank weaponry in. Is that what Ukraine is completely dependent on right now?
3: Well, they have their own forces that they began the war with, but they they had finite stocks of, of ammunition. I mean, Russia essentially has infinite stocks of ammunition because they can bring stuff uh, from from the interior. And all of those javelins and Stinger anti-tank and, and uh, anti-aircraft missiles, they're coming in by land. Um, but if, if Russia succeeds in encircling Kyiv, how are the uh, supplies going to get through?
1: I have not been told yet, from every U.S. official I've asked, I have not heard the clear answer to the question of when all of these sanctions will actually affect their military and what's happening on the ground. When will we see an impact?
3: I don't think we should count on sanctions to have an impact on the fighting in Ukraine. Um, What we should count on is that the Russians have proven themselves to be not very good at maneuver warfare. The art of maneuver warfare is to bring all your forces, land, air, all together at a point of attack. And they just seem incapable of doing that. The aircraft are flying over here and the land troops are are trying to advance over here. So they're attacking in piecemeal. And the Ukrainians, because they know the terrain better and because they're fighting for their country, are able to stop them. If they get their act together, the, THE LAWS OF PHYSICS ARE GOING TO APPLY HERE, AND THEY'RE JUST GOING TO BE ABLE TO GRIND UP THE UKRAINIAN RESISTANCE.
1: DAVID, THANK YOU VERY MUCH FOR YOUR INSIGHT AND FOR YOUR REPORTING. WE GO NOW TO SECRETARY OF STATE ANTONY BLINKEN, WHO'S IN MOLDOVA THIS MORNING. MR. SECRETARY, GOOD MORNING TO YOU. Uh, VLADIMIR PUTIN has, morning, HAS SAID THAT SANCTIONS AMOUNT TO A DECLARATION OF WAR. THEY ARE IMPACTING HIS ECONOMY, BUT THEY'RE NOT STOPPING HIS MILITARY. When will sanctions stop the fight?
4: Uh, Margaret, the impact of the sanctions is already devastating, which is presumably why he said what he said. But uh, at the same time, uh, we continue to see President Putin uh, doubling down and digging in on this aggression uh, against Ukraine. Uh, that's continuing. I think we have to be prepared, um, unfortunately, tragically, for this to go on uh, for some time.
1: NATO has said... None of its 30 members are willing to set up a no-fly zone. President Biden has been very clear he has no interest in that or combat troops. But what more can the United States do here? If, for instance, the Polish government, a NATO member, wants to send fighter jets, does that get a green light from the U.S., or are you afraid that that will escalate tension?
4: No, that that gets a green light. In fact, we're talking uh, with uh, our Polish friends right now, about what we might be able to do to backfill uh, their needs if, in fact, they choose to provide these fighter jets to, to the Ukrainians. Uh, what can we do? How can we help to make sure that uh, they get something to backfill the planes that they're handing over to, to the Ukrainians? We're in very active discussions with them about that. Look, I've been in, in, in Europe for the last couple of days working closely, as always, with our allies and partners at NATO, uh, the European Union, uh, the G7 countries, and all of us together are continuing to take steps to increase the pressure uh, on Russia through uh, additional sanctions, all of which are very actively under discussion and will be implemented in the, uh, in the coming days, as well as uh, taking further steps to give uh, the Ukrainians um, what they need to defend themselves against the Russian aggression.
1: How do you convince Vladimir Putin that this isn't ultimately about regime change? How do you get him to back down?
4: For us, it's not about regime change. That's uh, — the Russian people have to decide who they want to lead them. Um, and look, as I said, the, the, the challenge is this. Uh, Vladimir Putin uh, continues to uh, to press this aggression. Uh, that's why I say I'm afraid this could go on for, for some time. But uh, it's going to end, and it's going to end with, um, with Ukraine prevailing, because even as Putin has the capacity, because he can—the manpower, the equipment uh, that he has, that he can bring to bear, can continue to grind down uh, these incredibly brave and resilient Ukrainians, Um, winning a battle is not the same thing as winning a war. Taking the city is not the same thing as capturing the hearts and minds of Ukrainians. What they've demonstrated, with extraordinary courage, is that they will not be subjugated to Vladimir Putin's will uh, to—and be under Russia's thumb. So— whether that takes um, another week, another month, another year to play out, uh, it will. And uh, I know how this is going to end. But uh, the question is, can we end it sooner rather than later with um, less suffering uh, than, uh, uh, you know, to, uh, going forward?
1: President Zelensky has repeatedly said that these may be his final days. If Russia kills him, what will be the consequence, and are you working on a contingency plan to support a Ukrainian government without him at the helm?
4: The leadership that the President Zelensky has shown, the entire government has shown, is remarkable. They've been the embodiment of this incredibly brave Ukrainian people. I was just uh, a, a day ago uh, in Ukraine, at least about 15 feet into Ukraine, with my, um, my friend and colleague, the Ukrainian foreign minister, Dmitry Koleba. The uh, Ukrainians have... Uh, plans in place that I'm not going to talk about or get into any details on to make sure that there is what we would call continuity of government, one way or another. Um, And let me leave it at that.
1: I also want to ask you about another massive diplomatic undertaking, and this is the attempt to negotiate a deal to put a cap on Iran's nuclear program. Yesterday, Russia's top diplomat, Sergei Lavrov, said he wants you to personally give him a written guarantee of exemptions from sanctions in order to keep cooperation on the nuclear deal. Are you giving him that? Is the entire Iran deal at risk?
4: The um, sanctions that are being put in place and that have been put in place on Russia have nothing to do with the the Iran nuclear deal and the the prospects of getting uh, back into that agreement. Uh, These things are, are totally different and uh, are, uh, just are not uh, in any way linked together. So I think that's, um, uh, that's irrelevant. Uh, it's also in Russia's interest, irrespective of anything else, for Iran not to be able to have a nuclear weapon or have the capacity to produce a weapon on very, very short order. Uh, that interest remains, again, irrespective of um, where we are in our relationship with Russia as a result of its aggression in Ukraine.
1: What are the prospects for that deal and also two other aspects here, the American hostages that are being held by Iran right now? And do you see the prospect for Iran agreeing to stop threatening people on U.S. soil like they did a journalist living in New York, like they have threatened your predecessor, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo?
4: We've made real progress in in recent weeks on getting back to re-implementation of the uh, the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, Uh, and I think we're we're close. But uh, there are a couple of uh, of very challenging remaining issues, and nothing's done until everything's done. And so unless we're able to resolve uh, a couple of outstanding issues, um, then we don't get get back to the deal. But uh, we're working on it right now. It is uh, really coming down to whether we can resolve uh, a couple of outstanding issues, if we can. Uh, we'll get back into the deal. If we can't, we won't.
1: On those specific issues of stopping, stopping threats against those on U.S. soil and on releasing hostages, are those two demands?
4: We're going to continue to do everything we possibly can uh, to get um, detained uh, Americans, uh, arbitrarily detained Americans, home, whether it's Iran or anywhere else. And that's something we're working, uh, again, every single day. When it comes to threats uh, that uh, that Iran is making, uh, when it comes to actions that it's taken, uh, outside of uh, the, the, the nuclear area, uh, including activities in, uh, in the region, in the Middle East, that are threatening to us, uh, threatening to allies and partners. Uh, again, irrespective of whether we get back into the deal or not, we will stand and act against uh, those uh, every single day. Um, we were very clear when we were in the deal originally that uh, nothing about the deal prevents us from taking action against Iran when it's engaged in, in, in actions that threaten us, threaten our allies and partners. That will very much continue.
1: Mr. Secretary, thank you for your time.
5: Thanks, Margaret. Good to be with
4: you.
1: Face the Nation will be back in a minute. Stay with us.
5: Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret?
6: That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. And
1: we are joined now by Ukraine's ambassador to the United States, Oksana Makarova. Welcome back to Face the Nation, Ambassador. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Your president issued two pleas for help this morning. Um, He said, if the West does not provide Ukraine with at least planes, there's only one conclusion to make. You also want us to be killed very slowly. This morning, Secretary Blinken said there is a green light for Poland to give you those fighter jets. Do you know if you will get them, and what difference will it make?
5: Well, as we see during 11 past days, I think Ukrainians have shown to all the world that we are not going to stop and we are not going to surrender, and we will defend our homes. And like in 2014, when uh, Russians attacked us the first time, and there was this brutal destruction of Donetsk Airport, where Ukrainian cyborgs, uh, people that, uh, our military guys, defended the airport until the very end, until it collapsed. And there is a saying we have that, uh, you know, they, the cyborgs withstood, the concrete didn't. We don't want that to happen again. So we will fight, our brave men and women of the armed forces, and all the civilians who are stopping the enemy, without weapons even, will fight. And we need all the support in order to sustain this fight. Do you know when those planes will come? uh, We are hoping as soon as possible. And we are working with our American, especially friends and allies, on the steady supply of all the ammunition and uh, anti-air, anti-tank and planes to be able to effectively defend our country.
1: Uh, It terrified the world, frankly, this week when they saw that Russia fired on a nuclear power plant in Ukraine. Um, And they're... Your president told Congress yesterday forces from Russia seized two nuclear power plants in Ukraine. They're advancing towards a third. Are you on your own to defend these? Is any help coming from anywhere in Europe to secure the nuclear plants? Well, I think it should come,
5: because uh, the first station that they seized was Chernobyl station, which is very risky, but it's not operational. So there is a lot of waste there and everything else. And since they they won won of the war... Uh, The personnel that is there is held hostage. There are no change of shifts, so it's very dangerous. The second one, Zaporizhia, is the largest one in Europe. So, actually, that put a world on the brink of the nuclear disaster. And even though, again, our firefighters were able to put down the fire, nobody is safe. Ukraine is not safe. Uh, Europe is not safe. Because these stations are not supposed to be run by war criminals. They're supposed to be uh, run by uh, responsible engineers. So uh, this is something that we are raising as, as an issue because Ukraine has many power plants mm-hmm. and all of them could be under attack because, again, we all are shocked not only about that, but about all this indiscriminatory shelling of civilians,
1: shooting people, bombing schools, now nuclear plants. What's next? So, But what's the solution there? Are you asking to, uh, you know, what, UN officials to come in and help secure? I mean, what is the option available to Ukraine to secure these plants now? Well, this is the question to
5: the world. You know, we are ready for any option. We're talking about the uh, closed skies. We're talking about any type of uh, uh, security operations. We are talking to anyone. So whatever, whoever, whether it's the UN or any other or individual countries, I mean, we should act together. We are defending it. We are doing everything possible. We are being responsible. Even though we are defending our home, our armed forces are very careful not to shoot at the the power plants, not to do any damage that could impact not only Ukraine, but us. We cannot say about the Russian criminals, Mm -hmm. who are doing everything
1: specifically to destroy Ukraine. And Russia, of course, denies any of this, uh, is deliberate, um, and denies the reports from your government that... They're raping women, that there's a deliberate targeting of nuclear power plants and infrastructure. They deny bombing Holocaust Memorial deliberately. Do you think that the international community is doing what it's supposed to do, or do you feel like the international system is failing Ukraine? Um, look, first, it's appalling uh, that Russia is denying it
5: and, they're, and that they are lying. Because we see it online, and I would like to thank all the brave men and women journalists who are now in Kyiv and in all the other other places showing what's actually happening in Ukraine. Uh, It happens. They did it. They did it deliberately. We uh, see it on videos, photos, and, you know, we all talk to people back home. Mm -hmm. So Russians are escalating, and they are quick, and we are very helpful. We are very thankful to all our partners, and especially to the United States, to everyone, to President Biden, for everything they are doing to support us. But it's clear after 11 days that we also need all of us to move faster because Russians are escalating.
1: You attended the State of the Union last week as a guest of the First Lady. Um, the President addressed this country talking about Ukraine. That's very different for the American people to hear. How do you explain to the American people why this $10 billion in aid that President Biden is asking for, why should U.S. taxpayers be concerned and invested in your country?
5: Well, Ukraine didn't do anything to be attacked. We didn't provoke Russia. We didn't do anything. We we, We were not a threat to Russia, unless being a peaceful democracy and just peacefully living in your own country is a threat. And if it's so, then it's not only about Ukraine. Then Europe and the whole world is not safe. I mean, we see President Putin uh, threatening everyone with all the forces, including the nuclear force. We have to stop him because, again, it's not just some conflict. It's not just some regional problem. It's a full-fledged war that a nuclear large power that actually signed an assurances, together with the United States and Great Britain, when we denuclearized Ukraine voluntarily in 1994, signed, give, gave us assurances not to attack us. So we are first, and we need to stop Putin and this criminal war in Ukraine, rather than waiting until we all together will have to fight it
1: everywhere. Madam Ambassador, thank you again for joining us. WELCOME BACK TO FACE THE NATION. WE NOW WANT TO GO TO HOUSE INTELLIGENCE COMMITTEE CHAIRMAN ADAM SCHIFF. HE'S A DEMOCRAT FROM CALIFORNIA AND JOINS US FROM THE LOS ANGELES AREA. GOOD MORNING TO YOU. GOOD MORNING. I WANT TO START ON UKRAINE. Uh, THE UNITED STATES PURCHASES ABOUT 600,000 BARRELS OF RUSSIAN uh, PETROLEUM PRODUCTS A DAY. SPEAKER PELOSI SAID THAT OIL SHOULD BE BANNED. THE WHITE HOUSE SAYS IT'S LOOKING AT OPTIONS. What is that option? Does, it, does a solution come from Congress, or is this something President Biden needs to act on?
7: I think it could come from either place. Uh, I think there's very strong bipartisan support to cut off uh, Russian oil and gas sales to the United States. Uh, it's anathema, I think, to many of us in Congress that while we were sanctioning them and trying to cripple their economy, that we would help them in any way by purchasing uh, their petroleum— uh, but I think the administration wants to make sure that we uh, work with our allies. This will have an impact potentially on global oil prices, in- including here at home, where in Los Angeles now gas is over $5 a gallon. Uh, so he wants to make sure that uh, we understand the impact on the global supply. But I think there is strong support to show a solidarity with Ukraine, but also to make sure that uh, American dollars aren't supporting the Russian war machine in any way.
1: How quickly does that need to happen? I mean, this is Putin's lifeline. It's a cash cow.
7: Well, I think we'd like to act on it very quickly. At the same time, you know, we have to be circumspect about the fact that Russia will probably find somewhere else to sell that oil and gas, too. So the impact ultimately on Russia uh, may not be as powerful as we would like. Uh, It's why we have to continue to explore additional ways to really uh, crush the Russian economy But I have to say, I'm enormously impressed with how the world has come together, with how here in Congress, uh, in a very partisan Congress, Democrats and Republicans are uniting around uh, this tough sanction package, uh, as well as providing more defensive military support to Ukraine. Uh, There is enormous solidarity with the brave people of Ukraine.
1: There is solidarity, but it seems that Vladimir Putin is willing to suffer the consequences of those sanctions, and the Russian people are. The military is not stopping its advance, uh, at least that we can see. Um, What will happen if, as President Zelensky is predicting, uh, he loses his life in this Russian attack? What will the United States do then?
7: Well, he has, I think, been an incredibly courageous uh, wartime leader. Uh, This was, I believe, another uh, miscalculation by Putin, who believed Zelensky uh, was weak, uh, would not be able to lead a country to war. But, in fact, he has proved to be enormously strong and not only rallied Ukrainians, but I think rallied people around the world. Uh, I don't want to contemplate what might happen in his absence, Uh, although I do think Ukrainian people will fight on, uh, and we will continue to support them. Uh, But obviously, we're doing everything we can, uh, supplying, I think, uh, real-time intelligence to help uh, protect him, uh, as well as to give Ukrainians the information they need to defend themselves.
1: The U.S. and global powers, as we spoke to Secretary Blinken about, are, are potentially on the cusp of a new diplomatic deal with Iran, a renewed version of this nuclear program. Um, should the Biden administration present that to Congress for review? Do you want to take a look at it?
7: Well, I'm certainly going to want to uh, look at it and study it uh, and assess the merits of it. Uh, I think it will come down, ultimately, to whether it is a uh, essentially reentering the deal uh, that the Trump administration Um, pulled America out of, uh, or it is substantially a different new and different deal. If it's the latter, then I think it will require a vote in the Congress. Uh, If uh, if it's the former, then uh, the administration may be able to do that on its own. Uh, Ultimately, I think the decision to pull out was disastrous. Uh, Iran has moved forward both uh, in terms of its enrichment, but also in terms of its expertise. Uh, And, ultimately, we're going to have to weigh the impact of that uh, on any new agreement.
1: You are chair of intelligence. You know well uh, Iran's uh, espionage activities and the operations they've tried to carry out on U.S. soil, including this attempt to kidnap a New York-based journalist. There are also threats against former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and other Trump officials. Should this new deal with Iran include a promise to stop carrying out those kind of operations on U.S. soil?
7: Well, I would love uh, a nuclear deal to include prohibitions on Iran's malign activities, a cessation of its missile and drone program. But the question is not what I would like, but rather uh, whether a deal that is confined to uh, curbing Iran's ability to get a bomb is a good deal. And I think if we can take off the table any pathway to a bomb for for Iran, that in and of itself is worthwhile. Uh, these other malign activities of Iran's, their plots against the U.S. personnel, Uh, or uh, Americans around the world, uh, we can deal with and have to deal with separately, and we should deal with them uh, aggressively. Uh, But I wouldn't uh, say uh, that we should uh, neglect to stop their nuclear program because of these other activities. We need to go after all of this, not necessarily in one agreement.
1: Before I let you go, I want to ask you about the January 6th uh, Committee. There was a development this week, um, a court filing, claiming there is now evidence that President Trump— broke the law in his efforts to overturn the election in 2020. Do you think that the attorney general is moving fast enough with his enforcement?
7: Uh, What we made clear in our filing to the court is, we believe there's a good-faith basis uh, to conclude that the former president and his campaign may have violated any number of federal laws, uh, including obstructing an official proceeding, the joint session, uh, and defrauding the American people. Uh, And I do think that the Justice Department ought to be looking at these issues and ought to be investigating, uh, in particular, just to give one very graphic example, the Mm -hmm. former president on the phone with the secretary of state in Georgia uh, demanding that he find 11,780 votes that didn't Mm -hmm. exist, but the precise number he would need to overtake President Biden. I think if anyone else had engaged in that conversation, they would be under investigation, and it should be no different for the former president. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think the department is diligently pursuing those who attack the Capitol that day, yes. but there were multiple lines of effort to overturn the election that may have violated the law, which also should be investigated.
1: All right. Chairman thank you for your time this morning. We'll be right back.
6: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car.
8: With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: We turn now to the refugee crisis. Christina Rafini reports from Poland. As Ukrainian men stay behind to defend
9: their country, Ukrainian women are fighting their own battles. Navigating danger, rubble, and chaos. It was scary. We got scared. Before that, we did not think we would leave. Panicked crowds and freezing temperatures, hauling children, luggage, even the family dog. Thousands of refugees have fled into surrounding countries, more than 100,000 to Slovakia, almost 170,000 to Hungary. More than 800,000 to Poland.
10: I want to stop war and get back my normal life. I want to
9: live in peace. 29 year old Kristinia came to this border crossing with a mission to pick up and deliver this car to the front, paid for with donations and filled with supplies.
6: Yeah, we have night vision. It's really hard to get now.
9: Since military age men can't leave Ukraine, women are acting as couriers.
10: It's whole country. A fighting against uh, enemy united like helping each other the only thing that helps these days is to work and to believe
9: believe that this will end that they can win and that their country and its people will be made whole now Secretary of State Anthony Blinken was here yesterday where he met with refugees and told them they are not alone and in a show of support President Biden has asked Congress for 4.2 billion dollars in aid for
1: Ukraine Margaret, Christina Rafini in Poland. Thank you. We want to go now to the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, Filippo Grandi. He's at a refugee shelter at the Ukrainian-Polish border. Uh, good afternoon to you, High Commissioner. You have said this is the fastest-moving refugee exodus since World War II. What are the numbers now? What are you seeing?
11: As of today, we've passed uh, the terrible mark of 1.5 million refugees. And this in 10 days, essentially from Ukraine into five neighboring countries, the bulk here in Poland, where I am now. And uh, if I think of past decades, I cannot think in Europe of a faster exodus of people, not since the end of the Second World War, I would say.
1: What are you seeing in terms of the state that people are showing up at these shelters in? What do they need?
11: Men of military age, which is from 18 to 60, cannot leave the country. They are in conscription, and they have to stay there to defend their country. So it's mostly women, children, elderly, many disabled people. And uh, they are, above all, frightened, traumatized. These are people that, until just a few days ago, had a perfectly normal life. And in, in a matter of hours, everything is thrown apart. And they had to be on the road, very difficult journeys, very traumatizing journeys through war-torn Ukraine up to the border. And now here, where they're safe, but of course they're separated from families, uncertain about their future. So I would say that that uh, trauma and anguish is the most defining feature at the moment.
1: Can civilians safely get out of the country? How many people... Uh, would-be refugees but are instead displaced and at risk right now?
11: These statistics are impossible to to define precisely because we don't have access. We are, you know, UN agencies and Red Cross are inside the country, but uh, they can not move everywhere. This is why the UN and the Red Cross are trying to negotiate safe passage to the most affected places. But up to now we have not succeeded in getting the necessary guarantees and respect for the ceasefire. That's the only way that we can send convoys in, bring supplies, and if necessary, bring people out. But people are moving also from other places that are even less impacted. Sometimes they move before it happens because they know it might happen to their location. So this is a, an extremely uh, messy situation
1: who is firing on those safe passages?
11: There is bombardment by the Russian forces, and this is what people are mostly uh, afraid of. Um, yesterday I was in Moldova, other neighboring country. People were coming from the city of Odessa, where there is no bombing bombardment yet. But sirens have uh, sounded over the day, and people are so afraid that they just leave their homes, especially people with children. They want to bring them to safety. Mm
1: -hmm. You know, uh, High Commissioner, you've been dealing with these record refugee numbers all around the world, even before this happened in Europe. What happens now that you have this massive influx? What does the UN need? I mean, what kind of resources do you need?
11: Well, let me state the obvious first. We need this to stop. We need this to stop. Because without uh, the war stopping, people will just continue to pour out of the country. One and a half million is difficult enough to manage, even for relatively stable and prosperous countries in Europe. Imagine, however, if we go further up, and we will, we will, no doubt, if it doesn't stop. Now, for for the people that are on the movement, first of all, we need to get more supplies inside Ukraine. And for that, we need at least some areas of tranquility where we can deliver help. And then here, for the mass of refugees, a lot is needed, you know, uh, any kind of relief supplies, we need cash to help people, we need logistical support. European countries have means and organization, but if this uh, number of people grows, we will need more international support. And at some point, uh, if people stay here for a long period of time, there will have to be uh, other countries offering places to host refugees, even outside Europe.
1: Tell me about that, because there was massive political backlash in 2015 when Syrian refugees poured into Europe. There's charges of racism, of discrimination. Poland, just in the past year, has tried to build a wall to keep refugees out, coming from the Middle East, from Africa. What is different now, and what is happening to those refugees
11: I think uh, there is, of course, at the moment, a colossal emergency. There, is a certain, there are certain geopolitical factors at play. But uh, I, I, I look at the future, and you're right, we've been struggling with convincing Europe to, take, to open the doors for more people, not to push back people. But I think that this crisis, and I've said it before, carries an important message that anybody can become a refugee, very suddenly, and that any country can become a frontline refugee-receiving country, needing the support of others. We work, you, Europe is learning fast to work together in so many ways in response to this crisis. I hope that this working together will apply to all people seeking refuge in Europe, not only now, which is happening, but in the future as well.
1: Thank you very much, Mr. High Commissioner, for your time today, and good luck to you. We'll be back in a moment.
8: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: We're joined now by Kurt Volker. He was a former U.S. envoy to Ukraine and former U.S. ambassador to NATO. And he joins us now. Thank you for coming on the program. You've been arguing for a no-fly zone over Ukraine. NATO says that's off the table. The United States, no way, no how, no combat troops. Uh, because President Biden says this would trigger World War III. Why is he wrong?
12: Well, I think there are ways to do this that uh, mitigate those risks. It doesn't eliminate the risk, but it it mitigates the risk of direct conflict with Russia. Uh, First off, I think we have to recognize that the civilian casualties and the horrific scenes that we just saw are going to get worse. They're not going to get better. There's going to be massive airstrikes against Kyiv, against other cities, and it's going to be absolutely devastating. So if we can prevent that from a humanitarian point of view, I think we, we need to try. And the way to do this that I would recommend is we make clear the humanitarian purposes. We limit the scope geographically to Kyiv and Western Ukraine so we're not getting close to Russian borders. We make clear that we will only fire if fired upon on any ground targets. We are not there to strike anything. We make clear to the Russian military that we will not strike their aircraft or their helicopters as long as they stay outside the zone. Mm-hmm. And then there are rules of engagement that our air force and others are very good at, of escorting people out of a zone without fire if they're not fired upon. And I think we apply all of those things in order to try to create a safe space for the civilians.
1: So uh, other former ambassadors to NATO have made the public argument that this is unrealistic because you would have to take out Russian systems, not only in Ukraine, but long-range ones, inside Russia? You go to war like this.
12: You don't do that because that does bring us directly into the fight. Russia does not want us in the fight. And I think we are letting Putin get inside our heads and deter us from doing things to protect civilians rather than taking into account that he does not want the U.S. or other countries supporting Ukraine.
1: So if the goal ultimately, diplomatically, is to stop the carnage and stop the war... How do you get Vladimir Putin to back down? Who can actually do that? Because the Germans tried, the French tried, the Israelis tried. No one's got any success. The U.S. is talking to China. Who can do this?
12: The Ukrainian people can do this. The Ukrainian people are there. They are determined. They are fighting. Uh, we are fortunate that we don't have to be in a position of fighting Putin or trying to stop him. The Ukrainian people are ready to do this. And that's why it's critical that we give them every bit of support and assistance we can.
1: When you say it will get worse, I mean, the French president has indicated that's basically what Vladimir Putin told him. Tell me what you what is the scenario the public needs to prepare for? Because NATO is already saying cluster bombs are being used. You hear incredible accusations from the Ukrainian government about what is happening. United States intelligence says lists of people to send to camps are being drawn up. Is this a scenario where you can see someone sitting down and negotiating the way out?
12: Not at all. No, we have to understand that Putin is bent on a military victory. He wants to destroy Ukraine, decapitate the leadership. Uh, He doesn't care about how many casualties this causes, what happens to the civilian population. Uh, This is a, a messianic mission that he is on. This is why he has to be stopped. And again, We can do things to assist the Ukrainians. Very happy to hear uh, Secretary Blinken say that we are now green-lighting the aircraft from Poland uh, to Ukraine. We should be providing some of our own A-10 aircraft that we're ready to put into storage. Uh, There are trained Ukrainian pilots who use them. We should be looking at more means to get more uh, support in quickly. What the UN uh, High Commissioner just said was they need tranquil areas inside Ukraine. In Western Ukraine, there are areas where there is no Russian fighting now. Uh, we could try to help create those tranquil areas for delivery of assistance. So much more we could be doing.
1: Is there the political will for that? You served in the Trump administration. Um, former Vice President Pence said Friday, there's no room in the Republican Party for apologists for Putin. It's kind of extraordinary he had to say that. Yeah.
12: Yeah. Uh, we've heard that in our in our media. We've heard that from some politicians here. But I think, as you heard also from Adam Schiff, there is incredible bipartisan unity in the Congress, Senate and the House, and uh, among experts and national security figures here in the country, everyone sees what Putin is doing. There is there is no support for this whatsoever, full support for Ukraine. The only question is how far we go to help Ukraine.
1: Was, was the former president an apologist for Putin? That's what the vice president said. Well,
12: I'm not going to pass a judgment on that. We heard what he said. You know, he said that Putin was acting in a smart, you know, savvy way. I mean, that's not the messaging that you want to send. The messaging you want to send is that he is acting in an irresponsible, inhuman way, mm-hmm. killing people uh, in an unjustified war, and we should be on the side of the Ukrainians to help them.
1: Thank you, Ambassador, for joining us today. We'll be right back. There was some good news this week. Progress at home battling COVID. There are some hints that life might be returning to something resembling normal. CBS News senior national correspondent Mark Strassman reports.
10: Happy Mardi Gras! When the only mask in sight is a Mardi Gras costume, you know something's changed. It's like your soul re-entering your body. It feels good to be back. Starting tomorrow in New York. We are winning. So... Let's celebrate the win. One of America's first cities to impose a mask mandate in public spaces will lift it. Starting Monday, New Jersey ends mandatory masking in schools. California, Oregon, and Washington state will do the same next week. COVID cases, hospitalizations, and deaths all down dramatically. Under the CDC's new metric, more than 90% of Americans live in counties with low or medium COVID risk. And a big reason is vaccinations. Three fourths of adults now have theirs. Another booster with COVID cases down. The labor markets up nearly 700,000 jobs added last month. 90% of jobs lost during the pandemic have returned, but COVID always comes with a caveat. Health officials warn the pandemic is hardly over and children under five are especially vulnerable. But overall, In unmasked America, we're breathing easier.
1: Our Mark Strassman with some news on COVID for a change. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. Until next week, for Face the Nation. I'm Margaret Brandon. Today's guests were Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Ukraine's ambassador to the U.S. Oksana Makarova, United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees Filippo Grandi, California Democratic Congressman and Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff, and former U.S. envoy to Ukraine and U.S. ambassador to NATO Kurt Volker. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we are online at facethenation.com. And you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation's also on our digital network, CBSN, at 12 p.m. and 4 p.m. Eastern Time every Sunday.
6: Hey, this is Reba McIntyre, and I wanted to take a moment to talk to you about a serious problem right here in our own backyard. Did you know that there are nearly 16 million kids struggling with hunger in America? That's one out of every five precious children in this country who might not get to eat dinner tonight. But hope is just around the bend. Because there's enough healthy, nutritious food produced in this country to put a smile on the face of every last hungry kid. And that's when the Feeding America Nationwide Network of Food Banks steps into the picture. They collect surplus food, engaging their communities in solving hunger and giving hope to the hungry kids and their families. But they need your help. So join me in supporting Feeding America and your local food bank. Find out how you can help at feedingamerica.org. Together, we can solve hunger. Together, we're Feeding America.
10: A message from Feeding America and the Ad Council.
4: 54, so it's too late to start saving for retirement, right?
9: Uh, not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference.
4: Right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around.
9: AARP makes it easy. Go to aceyourretirement.org and chat with AVO, the friendly digital retirement coach. It's free and only takes three minutes.
4: I like three minutes.
9: Answer some questions and get personalized tips to help boost your retirement savings. Thanks. Just head to aceyourretirement.org That's aceyourretirement.org A message from AARP and the Ad Council.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, we have arrived in Philadelphia. Local time is 3.05 p.m. and the temperature is 67 degrees. At this time, you are now free to use your cellular devices.
0: You know that feeling when you get to turn your phone on after the plane lands? You can have that feeling every time you drive. Make sure your cell phone is stowed away whenever you are behind the wheel. Visit stoptextstoprex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.
9: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first
6: booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News Business Analyst, Certified Financial Planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you